Hello and welcome to the Moonshots podcast. It's a very special episode 38. I'm your co-host, Mike Parsons, and as always, I'm joined by the man himself, Mr. Chad Owen. Hello, Brooklyn. Hey, Sydney, and uh, we're not alone on today's show, Mike, and we've got our first return guest on the Moonshots podcast, Mr. Brendan Yell. Welcome, Brendan. Hey, great to be back, guys, and um, certainly flattered by the uh, the return invite. Yes, it's a unique honor, Brendan, so uh, we're expecting lots of sharp, sassy, witty, uh, and insightful commentary from you, so no pressure. <laughs> but we've got a, such a special show uh, today, something we've never done before. Chad, what are we unleashing on our audience today? So we're taking a break from our usual format and hearing you know, directly from innovators and entrepreneurs out there and taking a step back and looking at some of the uh, hottest or potentially not so hot companies and, and stocks out there. So we're actually turning our attention to Tesla, Facebook, Twitter, WeWork, and Microsoft on today's show. And um, we've got an interesting format where essentially the three of us are going to decide or, or vote uh, whether we think uh, the company is hot or not, and uh, have a discussion and see if we end up in consensus or, or still divided. So, so Chad, do you, do you think that together we can team up and we can try and get Brendan to switch some of his uh, his votes? Do you reckon if he starts strong on Facebook, for example, do you reckon we could sway him to the other side? Do you reckon we're that convincing? I don't know. It. Uh, I'm pretty intractable on my opinion on some of these companies. So yeah, there, someone else may be the swing vote. Brent, Brendan, it sounds like you and I might need to uh, sway Chad and, and, and uh, get him uh, from one corner to the other. What do you think? Can we do it? I don't know. This is going to be tough because I know I'm not moving. So well, we'll see how this goes. <laughs> oh, well, great. So it's all on me. Thanks, guys. But, but really what's so interesting about these five companies is you can really argue them to both sides of the argument, to either hot or not. And I think this really brings us to the the changing winds around a lot of these tech titans. And there's definitely been a change. I think um, we've seen so many different political issues. I mean, we've seen Zuckerberg in front of uh, Congress. We've seen Elon lose some of his uh, stardom, if you will. He's had definitely a few mishits of recent times. And uh, we've seen like a sleeping giant like Microsoft sort of awaken from its shackles under new leadership and it seems to be really powering. So there's so much, so much for us to discuss here. But, but Chad, I think we should unleash sort of an opening uh, uh, thought piece that we've got together here, which is discussing the FANG stocks and which is generally a, a, a label given, obviously, to some of the leading tech stocks. And they're sort of the bellwethers of what's happening uh, right now in tech and innovation. So why don't we just uh, get our minds into the groove of things to understand this shift that seems to be happening right now in tech stocks. So we're going to hear from a great uh, analyst based in Canada. And this is him really trying to put a sharp accent on what's happening now with the biggest tech innovators in the planet. 
You've probably heard that technology stocks took a beating this month, as tech giants reported their second quarter financial results. But it's worth taking a closer look to get a sense of what's really going on with the so-called FANG stocks, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, and what to watch for in the future. Of those five tech behemoths, Apple, Amazon, and Google all actually reported solid financial results. So why the doom and gloom? In a word, Facebook. The company posted slower than expected user growth, and at this point, Facebook has basically hit market saturation in North America and Europe. The social networking giant still posted a $5 billion profit this quarter, but the slow user growth, plus the Cambridge Analytica scandal, and a bunch of other negative headlines all kind of caught up with the company. Facebook's stock dropped so hard that it wiped out $120 billion in market capitalization, roughly the same as the total value of McDonald's. And tech stocks were hit by a bit of a double whammy when Twitter reported its own numbers the next day and also posted slower user growth, which appeared to reinforce the trend. Netflix ran into the same trouble with lower than expected growth, leading to a backlash from investors. Here at home, Ottawa-based Shopify faced some investor backlash of their own when the company reported its second quarter results. The numbers looked solid, but the rate of growth from the e-commerce service provider is slowing. Instead of posting 75% revenue growth like they did last year, Shopify only posted 62% revenue growth this year. Now, in a lot of sectors, 62% revenue growth would be absolutely colossal. But what's important to understand here is that technology companies have been popular with investors precisely because they tend to post such huge growth metrics. If the business stops growing, it becomes a lot harder to justify that share price. But remember, the FANG stocks are still huge and very profitable. The big question here is whether the Wall Street sell-off is a turning point for how the market views tech stocks, or just a summer blip driven by one bad quarter from Facebook. On that question, we'll just have to wait and see. And just so you, the listener, know kind of where we are in time here, depending on how far in the future you're listening to this episode, so the, the $120 billion drop in Facebook was in July of, of 2018. And the most interesting thing for this clip and kind of this show that we have here today, Mike, is um, we're kind of taking a different view of these companies, kind of more from a, a higher level and a financial point of view. And we have four public companies and one still privately held company, WeWork. And so I think we can have some really interesting discussion of like how the VC world viewed these companies and still views WeWork. And then how once these companies go public and have, you know, decades of, of stock history, like in the case of Microsoft, how that, you know, how that changes um, our perception of the company. So I'm, I'm excited to, uh, to dive in and uh, convince you all of my, my <laughs> positions on whether they're hot or not. This is feeling like a, like it's become more like a boxing match. Everyone's like, I'm sitting in my corner and come get it. <laughs> I, I will say this though, that, that we're using a lot of um, Wall Street financial analysis of the companies to be the basis for our discussion. And uh, the reason that this is really powerful is that the stock market, the investing market, is a proxy to the future uh, outcomes of companies. So when Facebook lost $120 billion in one day, just so you know, the single biggest stock loss in one day in U.S. history, um, and, you know, the, the amount that they lost, is, as the, the clip was talking about, was the entire valuation of McDonald's disappeared in one day. And that was how much the market said that the future prospects of Facebook 
are 20% less than what they were the day before. And so we're just using this as a starting point to our discussion. So you'll hear us talking about what we think of these products as users, as uh, investors. So a great way to think about this is, you know, if you had to invest a college fund, would you do so in this stock? And I think, Brendan, as we step back and look at the more than 20 years of history that we've got in the tech market, we've seen so many of these ups and downs. I mean, I'm instantly taken back to the early 2000s when, when stocks on, on the NASDAQ dropped. I think it was the, the NASDAQ dropped 10% in one day. And uh, certainly the first tech and internet bubble uh, just popped right there and then, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, April 2000 was a very interesting time. We had a lot of very overvalued stocks. Um, no one really knew how big this internet thing was going to blow up, but it seemed like it was going to get kind of big. So there, there were people IPOing left, right and center without much kind of backing. Um, we don't have that kind of uh, uh, craziness and haven't had that more recently. Um, this does remember, remind me of a website that launched in 2000. And for the kids out there, there was actually a website called hotornot.com. And you'd upload a photo of yourself and people would vote whether you looked hot or not. So very pre-Tinder, um, but it just I thought I'd explain the reference for the kids out there. Well, let me just build on that. Actually, one of our companies started as a version of Hot or Not. Uh, so uh, Facebook was actually started at Harvard with, if I get it right, Chad, I don't know if you know the details better than I do. Didn't Zuckerberg take photos of the students uh, off the yearbook and then put them into a voting uh, app. Wasn't that how it worked? Yeah. So I'm exactly the same age as, as Mark Zuckerberg. And when I went to school, everyone got essentially it, it was literally a face book or a book of faces where all of the incoming freshmen had a little profile of where they were from, their high school, and kind of what their stated major was. And it was just like a little flip book, kind of like you know, just just like a yearbook, and yeah, what uh, what he did was he essentially digitized that, and yeah, there was some voting, and yeah, you could say it, um, maybe it was a little uh, shallow or vapid, if you will, but um, I mean, I mean, look at where it is today. So <laughs> I know, I know. Now, now, fast forward, you know, Facebook is like ten, eleven years old now, and you know, we've already done a feature on uh, both Mark and, and obviously uh, Sandberg as well. But here's the thing, you know, Facebook is roughly at about 2 billion users. The world only has 7.6 billion. So there's this massive question about whether it's peaked or not. So let's have a listen to the first discussion about our first hot or not prospect. Let's have a listen to now to Facebook being discussed, has it peaked? Or are we witnessing the start of a decline? We actually have said this, and, it, and, and now it's being proven that social media use has peaked in, in the industrialized world, and, and we're actually see, starting to see the decline. So this is what Facebook is going to have to deal with moving forward as people realize how incredibly creepy it is, the amount of intrusive uh, 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 how is surveillance of its users that have been. So, so we expect Facebook to have to spend a lot more money. They're going to take in less money because they're limiting a lot of advertising that was very lucrative for them. And they're going to have slowing user growth or no user growth moving forward. So they've got some challenges on the horizon. Ed, th this uh, fall in uh, monthly and daily average users in Europe is, is frankly pretty astonishing. 
Do you think it's a one-quarter effect, given all those negative headlines we saw uh, around the March period of time before this quarter began? Or, or do you think this is, uh, as uh, Ross suggested, a peak in the use uh, of social media in uh, the developed world? I, I don't know that I'd go quite as far as Ross went, but I, I'm definitely sort of in line with him. This is certainly, you know, Europe is hitting a saturation point. I know they've had issues there with Cambridge Analytica. We know that the GDPR is sort of, you know, kind of crimping a little bit of the product. But I think it's more just a function of everyone who wants to be on Facebook is already on Facebook. So there's a little room to grow, at least on a subscriber basis or a user basis. That what they really need to do is find a way to squeeze in more ad inventory. And they actually flagged that even a year ago that they're running out of ad inventory. That's why Instagram is something they're really pushing hard and doing Instagram stories. And I think that's, that's the, the story here. I mean, the stock is down a lot largely because even, even despite the miss, they're there, it tends to be priced for a beat, if anything. And the fact that it didn't quite do that even is what's, what's hurting it even more. It's still a growing product. It's still, it's still you know, their advertisers ad is going up. Before we get too dramatic, they still had an 11% year-on-year increase in daily average users right. and monthly average users. Yes. They also, the bull case on Facebook is they have all these other levers to pull, whether right. it's Instagram or some of their other Instagram and Messenger and all right. the rest of it. So it is going to be, I mean, even if, usage intensity or the number of people using uh, has is close to peaking demand for digital advertising and to reach those eyeballs is not necessarily peak so in an auction advertising environment which is what they operate in pricing should adjust and you know it's not the end of growth it's a different flavor of growth but mike but if in the next quarter or two we saw the same thing happen uh, in the u.s as has happened in yeah. europe W would we see more than a 10% decline? Yes, then I, think then, I think, I think then the valuation gets penalized because you have to modify exactly what the long-term growth rate is. Hmm. Yeah, I think the big takeaway for me here is we simply can't expect the same kind of growth from a company like Facebook for a kind of its core product. You know, they were kind of hinting at, well, maybe Instagram can save it. But I think, at least for me, I'm going to say, I'm gonna say f Facebook is is on the not side of things. Not necessarily that it's peaked, but I definitely think that its growth has has stalled. And I'm going to put my my money on some of the other social media uh, companies out there. Mm, okay. So let me just kind of hit you with a few thoughts. Regardless of how you feel about Facebook, and, and personally, when I hear them putting more ads into Facebook. I cringe when they were talking about that. That's the last thing I want on my Facebook experience. Do you not feel that the fact that they have Instagram, which is growing like crazy, WhatsApp's going to uh, start charging business customers next year, don't you feel that whatever decline in Facebook happens, that the larger group of companies that it is, WhatsApp and Instagram are just going to like pick up the slack and keep the momentum going? I don't know if those separate P&Ls could carry, you know, the larger company. You know, I don't, I, don't, yeah, I can't yeah. see into their financials, but, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if one of those products actually got spun back out at some point if, if there really was a crisis. Oh, yeah, 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 nice. So, gentlemen, I'm going to vote on the, uh, the not for Facebook. Um, I, uh, I, I just think that, I mean, if, if I look at Facebook, so, so the core product of Facebook, I look at that and I go, you know, here's, here's myself who six months ago thought, why would you possibly want to ever uh, delete your Facebook account? And then, you know, e even knowing the privacy. I mean, I installed Google Maps seven years ago, and I figured I was giving up my privacy then. But, you know, just I've looked into it more recently, and even I'm, even I'm considering it that now. 
So you go, okay, let's say Facebook disappears tomorrow. What have they got left? So they've got the Instagram. Okay, look, Instagram is growing very strongly, but it's a mobile-only application. The, mm-hmm. the opportunity to insert ads is limited. So uh, those ads either have to be sort of very well-targeted, very entertaining, but the, the, the ability to monetize that small screen is, is more limiting. And then you look at Messenger and WhatsApp. I mean, Jan Koum, the founder of WhatsApp, recently resigned from the corporation because there was a push to monetize WhatsApp and he's like, no, you're doing it the wrong way. Um, but I still don't think they have a way to monetize their messenger products, which are very good. And obviously, you know, WhatsApp is is kind of, you know, in most places on the planet. So uh, I think it's, it's a challenging time for them. I think uh, Mark Zuckerberg's probably had the worst year of his life. I mean, you know, that was it was cringeworthy watching him in front of that that uh, that Senate inquiry, oh, and uh, yeah. I just don't, um, you know, I, I just see it kind of flatlining it. So that definitely means it's not hot, and for me, I'm going to vote not. Okay, um, I, I really, I, I think I'm 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 close to where you guys are, though. I think a couple of insights for, for me. I think my use of Facebook is largely due to the network effect of having lived in so many countries, it's the one place where friends are, okay? And what I also notice is that how functional and basically utilitarian my usage of it has has become. It's uh, the rugby teams that I work with all organize events and communication. Coaches have private groups. So it, it has this, this core utility What's very interesting is the thought of if people were leaving it, what value is left for, for, for the user that remains? And, and lastly, what I think is really an interesting test of Facebook is would you pay for it? And I would really struggle to pay for Facebook because the, I feel like I'm only there because I have to be. And with the privacy concerns that I have about the choices man- management made when they knew about Cambridge Analytica years and years ago and didn't enforce any of the, their policies onto them, I feel like I'm very uncomfortable with being the product. So that being said, I'm, maybe they're just... you got to give us your vote, Mike. Come on, now with the... Ah, but everyone's there, like, I don't know. Yeah, I'm but Mike, I'll, I'll challenge you and say, when was the last time you clicked on an ad on Facebook or... You know? Oh my gosh! I mean, yeah. I mean, I yeah. You're right. Not only that, but w- when? What was the last, you know, customer-driven product innovation that you've seen? N- not like, well, we're going to try and squeeze more ad inventory in without affecting the users, or change the algorithms to serve up brands' content to users in a way that they like. Sure. What was the last product innovation that they actually came out with that was from the from the customer's you know point of view, not trying to monetize things? Yeah, you're you're, you're right there, and and I will say that if I, it's it's all obligation um, how I come to Facebook, and I do enjoy Instagram. It's cleaner, simpler, more natural. I'm quite, I'm quite fond of the founders. Uh, of Instagram, I think they're they're pretty neat guys. But okay, uh, yeah, there's, I'm just struggling to get a, a reason why they're hot. Mm. And you're right, uh, I, I I think it, it's not. And, and the, the, do you think it will? Um, I want to come back to this thought of this ghost of MySpace, where you cannot. The idea here for our listeners is you cannot monetize the social graph. If you look at all the failed social networks. There is this school of thinking that you can't actually monetize it the way that uh, Facebook and Twitter are. Do we think that Facebook 
is going to begin a period of decline or are we actually saying that maybe in five years there is no more Facebook? What do, what do we think, guys? I'm thinking maybe in five years as well. It's not Facebook as we know it. It's not Facebook where every single one of your friends is on there and you log in there, you know, 18 times a day to see what's going on. I just, uh, you know, I mean, this is a company that's had a very bad track record, not only with uh, privacy. Um, and this goes back to the very big launch of Newsfeed. When they first put Newsfeed out there, all of a sudden they were, uh, if you like, broadcasting out to all your friends what your activity was on the side. And a lot of people kind of went crazy about it. But it's not just privacy. It's also things like moderation, right? There's Their moderation policy is very, very loose. They absolutely try to keep content on there, even if it includes some very, very, uh, let's say, b- very bad subjects. Um, and also things like digital rights management, right? So I, I, you know, years ago, I was working with the band In Excess and I uploaded my wedding video, which included a track from In Excess onto YouTube. Now, within a minute, I got an email from YouTube going, hey, just so you know, this track is licensed uh, to the band In Excess. You can either continue to upload the video there or leave the video there with no soundtrack, or you can hand over the advertising revenue to the owner of the copyright of that song. That happened within a, in a minute. Facebook, their, their digital rights management system for someone to rip someone else's video of, you know, someone's um, you know cat falling off a roof or something and then put it up there on Facebook, there's virtually no management system around that. I mean, there are a number of quite large companies that uh, built their audience on Facebook through ripping off other people's clips. On yes. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, that, that's true. Yeah. They, they don't have a great track record here. You know, I do believe, Mike, it is possible to monetize the social graph, but you have to recognize that the social graph is a personal space. It's a bit like when you know I'm in Messenger and, and, and a bot or an ad pops in there. I'm like, hang on, this is a personal space with me and my friends, you know, and some guy has just jumped in the middle of the group and going, hey, do you want to buy some yeah. shoes? And you're like, well, no, no, do you mind? I'm having a chat to my friends here, you know? So so if it, let me ask you this, Brendan, for, for the founders that are listening who are thinking about socially driven businesses, where is the, where is the, the safer ground uh, to monetize the social graph without running into all the problems of Facebook and Twitter? Well, I think probably the best way to go about it is almost do like the mum test, right? Would my mum be okay with this, you know, this conversation? Would she understand uh, the, 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 where her privacy and how it's being dealt with, you know? So I think if you take a very strong privacy first stance, uh, there's obviously still ways to monetize that, that social graph. Um, if you look at Facebook and, and its advertising kind of method, or like, uh, proposition, it's basically saying profiling, right? If you want to reach a certain profile of a certain person, we know so much about them, come and find them on Facebook. Where Google's advertising proposition is very different. It's all about intent. You know, if I'm typing, typing in, you know, Sony Bravia TV, I'm probably looking to buy a Sony Bravia TV. So it's all about intent. Uh, I know which side of the, the uh, proposition I'd rather be on, but hey, um, if you're looking for customers that want to buy your product, that you know want to buy your product, then Google's a great place. If you're looking to grow a market to people that you don't know, that these people don't know they want your product already, then profiling is a way to chase those customers. So, um, yeah, it's a, it, it's a challenging one. I do believe that you can monetize the social graph, just not sure Facebook is, has gone about it the right way. Mm. Yeah. Well, we have another company that is struggling with the, the same the same business model, uh, and that's Twitter. So I think this is kind of a nice uh, segue to to talk about Twitter and see if maybe 
we think it can survive on its own two feet. But uh, before we do, we've got a great clip uh, just kind of to set up where Twitter's at today. It's really a tough call right here. I mean, I think when you look at what the stock's done year to date, I think that the drop, quite honestly, was completely justified. Uh, and, and really, when you're looking at what they're doing in terms of the purge, let's be honest. I mean, our thesis is Twitter cannot be a standalone company. It needs to be part of a larger whole. And when 100 percent of the value of your company is dependent on the integrity of the data, the quality of the consumer, they can't have you know, bull- bullies, bandits and robots dominating their platform. So this is something they had to do in the long term. And let's remember, about seven months ago, Bob Iger came out and said they were in talks to actually acquire Twitter, but the reason they backed off was the quality of that user. I think that was something that resonated with Dorsey, and this is something that the company had to do to go forward. Want to bring in Yusuf Squally to the conversation from SunTrust, covers the stock, has a hold rating and a $33 price target. So, Yusuf, I I don't suppose you're telling investors to step in and buy after today's big plunge. No, not at all. And in fact, we just published a new note uh, a few minutes ago where we're actually lowering our price target to $30 on the back of what we heard this morning. The good news, and I agree with Robert, I think the company absolutely needs to do this. They need to clean up their act. At the same time, though, they are going in, into an investment cycle that will last several quarters, maybe even longer. And this investment cycle is going to crater margins for the foreseeable future. And because of that, you know, it's very, very hard to try to get behind uh, a stock uh, like this. That said, M&A is an opportunity, but honestly, you know, if it hasn't happened, uh, I'm not sure exactly if, it's, uh, if, if anything is imminent right now. Can it survive as a standalone company? I mean, geez, if you were working at Twitter and hearing people having that conversation, uh, Brendan, don't you feel like you would just be shuddering at that kind of speculation about your company? I mean, it would just be a bit soul crushing to try and build something and people are questioning whether it can even do it without being acquired, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't need to ring the people ops department at Twitter to figure out that there's probably a lot of people leaving that place right now. Uh, they're all probably reasonably highly paid and in high demand um, in uh, in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So, um, look, it's a tough one, Twitter. I mean, I think there's I think there's still a place for Twitter. However, you know, the whole bots and automated posts. I mean, I feel like I you know I regularly will, might jump on a Twitter to promote something. You know, and uh, I feel like I'm broadcasting out there, but there's no one listening. I just think the engagement rates are still the engagement rates from the average user are just very low. Mm. Uh, and, if, and if people aren't engaging, they're not they're not seeing ads. That they're they're going to be hard to monetize. Um, you know, obviously they went through recently and cleaned out a lot of these fake accounts so that people that had bought thirty thousand Twitter followers, you know, ended up with you know sort of fifteen thousand or. 2000 or whatever it is so look i'm going to vote um I, I i don't mind twitter but i just feel like the engagement is just too low everyone's broadcasting no one's listening so i'm voting not a big fat not on this ooh, one ooh. and and just for a bit of speculation who would you who would you see as being a good fit uh in terms of acquiring twitter if you were to attach twitter to another company who would that be? Yeah, it'd be one of the media networks. I still believe that Twitter around events, TV shows, you, know, you want to vote for who's going to win The Bachelorette. I mean, I think it's kind of a useful engagement platform around specific events. I just don't think it's one of those things that people log into every day and go, oh, hey, you know. I mean, there are some people that do. But so I'd go one of the big media companies. You know, Disneywood is an interesting one, like a, just like an NBC kind of, I could just see one of those big TV networks 
uh, utilizing it very well. Yeah, yeah, I would totally go CNN. Uh, I think Twitter really is unique when something's happening now. Mm-hmm. I think this is the only time in my world, and I'll give you a great example. So um, it's Saturday afternoon, it's uh, four o'clock, and I'm at one of the many different uh, rugby games during the winter that I'll go and attend. Now, because I coach a number of different uh, athletes, uh, I can't be at all the different games at the same time. And Twitter is invariably the best place to go to get live scores. That's a great use case of when no other media company, including Google, no one can produce real-time information like, like Twitter. So I feel that that's its only bastion where it has a truly defendable, uh, defend, defendable point of difference some sort of unfair advantage. But, Chad, when you think about Twitter, uh, are you just doom and gloom or is there some bright hope? Because Jack Dorsey is unquestionably a great leader. Yeah, I, I think I think Jack Dorsey's efforts are better spent elsewhere. And personally, I think Square is just a company that has far better prospects mm. in the long term. Mm. I mean, getting into the payments and financial services space, like it's, I, I think it's only going to continue to grow. I don't see another strategy for Twitter, I think, aside from some kind of acquisition. You know, just interesting factoid here. It's the only company that we're profiling where its its stock price and valuation is actually lower than when it IPO'd, mm. um, which, you know, given the five-ish, you know, years of history, that's that's just not, that to me, that just doesn't bode well for the company. Yeah. It, it seemed to be doing quite okay up until it announced that it had to purge so many, uh, so many users, you know. And, and I'll tell you another interesting thing about Twitter is breaking news of the last 24 hours is that Snap, okay, has also announced struggling user growth. So there is this really big theme happening where daily active users are under huge pressure uh, across Facebook, Twitter, and Snap. So there seems to be company-specific problems, whether it's privacy or bots. And then there's this greater theme of, of this saturation of social, and perhaps also there's this theme of people just like trying to fight back and get back some of their hard-earned attention and time and put them towards other things. You think that's happening, Chad? Yeah, and you know my not votes for Facebook and and Twitter. I think really are just really just they are no longer going to be the high growth companies uh, that they had hoped to be. I think um, certainly Twitter, or Facebook for sure can reach reach some kind of equilibrium in terms of. I, I don't think it will go away like MySpace. You know, I think it could use lose some users, um, mm. and I think Twitter could probably find an equilibrium as well. I just. It, they're not going to they're not going to grow like the investment community is is hoping and has valuated them at yeah that's that's i'm i'm with you guys huge huge uh problems ahead specific to twitter it had a very flat time under previous leadership uh it you know it was looking better under dorsey then they had to purge a massive amount of fake accounts. It leaves them in a, in a pretty fragile position. And, and I really like your thought, Chad, that, you know what? Square is killing it. Imagine if Dorsey was full-time. 
what what would be what would be happening and, and obviously squares in the payments area it has none of the social storm clouds around it it's just a highly transactional effective business to help small businesses grow so i think we've all landed on a pretty clear consensus for our first two so we're a no on facebook we're a no on on twitter um, and i think this really puts us in this clear thing that that there are company specific problems uh, for both Facebook and Twitter, but there is this greater uh, a ghost of MySpace about how delicate it is to monetize the social graph. And, and both companies seem to have had either privacy or fake account problems or both. And it really, really puts us into some real clarity about if we're entrepreneurs and we're trying to build businesses, I think you can say, it was vastly underestimated in the case of these two companies. How, how much care and attention has to be taken when the people, when the users become the product? So I wanted to ask you before we go into the other three companies, and we've got some big news in those as well, is there a social company that either of you guys see that you feel like is doing it well? Is there a company we can point at? And obviously Snapchat is not one of those. Is there a company out there, let's start with you, Brendan, is there a social company of prominence that you see and go, those guys are doing it right? Yeah, well, there's a, this company, I don't know if I could call them as social. I suppose they technically are social. But I, if you look at what WeChat has built in China, um, obviously started off as a simple kind of messaging platform similar to WhatsApp, but has gone out into you know payments. Uh, it's re- completely replaced email in, in, in China, not that it really existed, but that's kind of what they use there. There's like, uh, you know, like website type. There's, you can order food, pay. I mean, it's just, it's developed this massive ecosystem around that, that social graph. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure Mark Zuckerberg must be scratching his head saying, can't we just do that? Like that seems to be really making a lot of money. So um, that would probably be the number one to look at. And, uh, you know, if anyone's not even just explored WeChat, I can highly encourage it just to show you how actually innovative the Chinese have been uh, with this messaging platform. Mm, what about... I smell a future show topic in Yeah, there. I was just Googling around. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, what, Chad, where are you on? Is, is, I know you, you have a personal aversion to social. I'm a, I'm a light in that department, Mikey. <laughs> you, know, you know that. The, li- the listeners have probably picked on up on that by now. I, I, I can't think of any, um, but I'm definitely going to do my research on WeChat because uh, I'm very curious. Yeah, so they're, they're owned by Tennyson. So for our listeners and uh, everyone keen to look into them, uh, Tennyson is the, is the place to go for and that. Michael, just mentioned that um, Jason Calacanis, the famous uh, Silicon Valley angel investor, uh, uber's first angel he is running a thing currently called the open book challenge where he is uh offered to fund up to a hundred thousand dollars startups that are uh looking to be the next facebook or social network Hmm. fascinating so where that gets us to is sort of a very a very clear picture on social and what's really cool is we've got three more companies coming up we've got tesla Microsoft and WeWork and very different companies. I'm, I'm very excited to see what patterns we can decode here. Where would you like to start, Chad? If you're looking at these three, what, 
What's got your what's got your curiosity? What are you dying to ask the question, hot or not? Well, I don't know. I, I think we start with the big personalities uh, and go to Tesla and and, uh, and Mr. Elon Musk. Okay, so um, just to set up Tesla for a moment and to kind of set the context here, there was a tweet that went out a few hours ago that is rather controversial. And basically, Elon Musk is asking the question out loud, uh, shall he take Tesla private? The stocks went soaring. They had to call a halt on the stocks. This is massive breaking news. Where are you guys at on when you hear this news, taking taking, uh, Tesla private? Uh, What's your first reactions? Oh look! I mean, if they can if they can continue to fund it, I mean, one of the great things about being public is your it's reason your your company is reasonably liquid, and if you need to raise more capital, it's a very quick process to do that. Uh, look, I mean, Tesla is an amazing company. The fact they've got Solar City has kind of been sucked in there now. Uh, I'm a massive fan of Tesla. You know, I think they will continue to grow. I think you know, I, I get worried with Elon is so. Uh, so much in the public eye these days as the CEO. Uh, I mean, I know he is called the co-founder of Tesla, but you know, Tesla was founded by two guys, you know, um, you know, Mark Tarpening and um, Mark Nuberhard, uh, who actually had electric cars trial electric cars running around the streets before mm. Elon even came along, and then joined their Series A, became chairman, and then they let him call himself co-founder. So mm-hmm. you know, I I get a little worried that there's a bit of an ego thing going along there with Elon. Um, but I'm a massive fan of the company, and I'll just call it straight away. I'm calling them hot. Oh, you're already you're hot. I love this. This is a, a strong, strong call. Yeah. Well, I'm going to pile it on right after Brent. I'm going to call Tesla hot as well. Oh, tell us why. Tell us why. Uh, as you could probably tell, you know, I, I'm 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 of the the sort that I, I love the kind the, the companies that actually build things mm. and do things. I think while many of Elon's ventures are kind of too ahead of their time, I think we're finally getting to the point where many of his big bets uh, are starting to, to to prove themselves. You know, certainly he had big wins at, at SpaceX. And I think now, you know, he's kind of overpromised maybe a little bit um, when it comes to Tesla. But I think, you know, if we're having this discussion in three or five years, there's going to be hundreds of thousands of, of Tesla electric vehicles, I think, driving around mm. all across the globe. Yeah, uh, I agree. Well, I think without doubt, it is a wild ride when you're with Elon. And uh, we have a great clip. So let's listen to that. And I, I'm a bit mixed. So I just want to let you guys know I'm a bit mixed. I'm going to need some convincing. But first, let's have a listen to uh, Scott Galloway again. Uh, discussing Tesla and the wild ride that comes with Elon Musk. Is this the Thomas Edison of our generation? Will this company change the automobile industry forever? Or is the stock wildly valued, overvalued? And I think the answer is yes. I think (laughs) you're going to see the auto industry remake itself largely because of the inspiration of Tesla and Elon Musk. You know, it's an incredible car. He is the Thomas Jettison of our industry. Big, bold innovation. But the company trades at, I think, seven times revenues, and the majority of auto firms trade trade between 0.25 and one times revenue. So this is a company that if it got, if its stock got cut in half, 
by traditional automobile metrics, it would look inexpensive. And you know what's strange? Whenever I make these statements, people descend on me. If I ever say anything negative about Trump, people descend on me. If I ever say anything about Apple, people descend on me. And Tesla has such a rabid yes. following right. that my Twitter feed will light up when I get back to the office about what an idiot I am because I dare question the genius of Elon Musk. The genius of Elon Musk. Well, it's, it's on one side for me, it's like, I think what he's revealed in the last six months is equal parts genius and talent and equal parts ego and uh, arrogance. Like the way he handled the rescue of the, the children in the cave was him at his worst. The way he has engaged analysts from the, from the financial industry is him at his worst. But his boldness in his ideas and how he sees the world is him at his best. I would actually say that if this announcement had not come out 24 hours in the last 24 hours about them going private, I would have a hard time seeing Tesla survive under the constraints of being a public company. But I'm actually going to put forward to, to you, Brendan, that Tesla going private closes the deal for me. I'm very hot on Tesla because Elon would not be subject to all the grown-up stuff that a public company is required to do. So I think this is genius, genius, genius. What do you think? Yeah, look, I, I completely agree. There's no doubt that uh, Elon hasn't really enjoyed being the uh, the CEO of a public company. Um, all the you know the analyst calls, all the questions, all the second guessing of what he's doing. His relationship with journalists would be called frayed at best. Uh, so you know, taking it private takes away a lot of those things, and all he has to do is make good cars uh, and sell them, and the business will be successful. Uh, you know, the tweet uh, says, Can, I'm considering taking Tesla private at $420, funding secured. Uh, current share price uh, today, as it sits on the 8th of August here, is uh, $380. So it's quite a premium. Um, but if the funding secured, I think if that allows him to just build a great company and not deal with that public side of things that he doesn't handle very well, um, you know, I mean, after Trump, he was the next, you know, Twitter account we probably should cancel. Uh, so, look, I think it's uh, probably, uh, I think Tesla's around to stay, no doubt about it. Yeah, and just, again, looking at SpaceX, which has been private, it's got almost a $30 billion valuation, about half that of Tesla's, and he's just building rockets and going to Mars, you know? Just, I, I think, tamping down on a little, you know, some of his eccentricities is probably a good thing. Yeah, I, I mean... <sighs> To me, the, the things that have borne out is when he, he's obviously super stretched, right? And he, he's got this a very obsessive personality. I think this move makes life easier for him if he can pull it off. And the audacity to even have this idea is just, it, it's a great lesson for us in contrarian thinking to uh, what we just had on the Steve Jobs shows, those that are crazy enough to think different uh, and believe they can change the future are the ones that do. I think, I think you see a great entrepreneurial spirit and a huge lesson here to break the constraints, don't you, Chad? Don't you think like Elon just seems so free in his thinking? He doesn't seem shackled by, you know, the, the, the de facto standards in which he lives. No, he finds out that, you know, he needs a better battery f to to create a $50,000, you 
sexy, affordable electric cars. So he decides to build the biggest battery factory in the world that turns out hundreds of batteries like a minute. Yeah, I think his um, and he's been fortunate enough to have the the financial backing and funding to place those big bets. Things like the Hyperloop are going to take, I think, much longer to uh, prove out if they ever do. But yeah, I mean, I'll bet on fifty thousand dollar electric cars every day over you know ephemeral so- social media uh, <laughs> messaging and uh, media companies. Yeah, fair enough. Well, so it sounds like. Uh, we have a strong uh, hot here. So, so where does this leave us in the in the tally so far, Chad? What, where are we at? Well, we've been unanimous, I think, in our uh, mm. our hot or nots on the on on Facebook, Twitter, and and Tesla. I'm curious if there's going to be any dissent in the ranks in this final <laughs> two. <laughs> well, just just a reminder: if anyone listening to the show wants to get the show notes, the details. They want to find out more about our, our super guest, Brendan Yell. Where, where do they go for all that information? Well, they can find that at moonshots.io. We've also got uh, our a whole host of future episode ideas, um, what you can expect in, in the coming weeks and months from the show. Um, you can also go back into the archives and listen to our previous show with Brendan, episode eight on Ed Catmull from Pixar. It's a great episode. I highly recommend you go back and check it out if you're just now popping into uh, our latest feed on, on the podcast. Yeah, and don't forget to uh, leave us a rating and review on iTunes. We always appreciate it. Mm, totally. And and Brendan, tell us what you've been up to. We obviously, uh, we've introduced you uh, in, into the show you you wear at least two hats, if not more. Tell us a little bit about what keeps you busy and where this this love of technology and innovation comes from. Yeah, well, I've been involved in tech and tech startups, uh, you know, since I had a a Commodore sixty four and a dial up modem. So that's uh, <laughs> uh, that's uh, how far I go back. But uh, look, my day job today is I run the startup program for SendGrid. Uh, SendGrid, an amazing company that sends emails for some of the world's biggest companies, including Tesla and Uber. Um, but I also run Startup Grind in Sydney, which is a, a great monthly event where we get uh, a successful founder to come in and, uh, and tell their story. And um, beyond Commodore 64s, what are you seeing in today's world of startups and technology? And you're talking to so many startups. What are the things that you see that have you most excited? What's the stuff that's really got your interest at the moment? Oh, look, I'm definitely looking at the AI space. I think that is just... Uh, really allowing you to build a, a, a new range of products that couldn't exist, you know, five years ago. So I think that's super exciting. And, um, yeah, I probably talked to around 300 startup founders a year. And, you know, I, I think just in that last Tesla um, highlight there was pretty interesting. And it's a great lesson for founders that, you know, you know, don't worry about what TechCrunch or Mashable or even the Moonshots podcast is saying about you. No. Just get in there, <laughs> build great products and sell them to customers. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really uh, true. Like don't be too obsessed with the media and what the outside is saying. I think, um, you know, the other lesson here is – if I extract what happens where Elon's at right now, is it something that I'm interested in? You've seen much, but I have certainly met a lot of founders who have uh, taken on capital either privately or publicly and not really been aware of the expectations that come with that. And the great example is people who raise too much uh, or from the wrong uh, 
venture capital firms and then a year or two later go on to regret it because of all the implications. Either, like Elon, he took money from the public markets but he's not enjoying being a public market CEO or startup founders who are under the pressure of venture capital firms invest because they want a liquidation moment and maybe the startup founder doesn't want that but then doesn't have the freedom anymore to choose because they took money from others. Is this, is this a learning that you've seen and, and something that you see startup founders tackling? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, last week uh, in Sydney, we had the founder of Finder.com. I mean, he's built, you know, roughly a billion dollar company, uh, completely bootstrapped. Uh, and, you know, when you talk to the, you know, Fred Shivester about, uh, you know, growth hacking and SEO, like this guy knows how to find customers and not pay for them. So, uh, you know, it's that, that great adage, the best way to raise capital is from your customers uh, because you're getting the people to actually validate the, the product you're selling and you learn from those customers as well. So, look, I mean, you know, in certain industries, raising capital can be is necessary. You know, it's a uh, it's a race uh, to get uh, to a certain point, and capital can can speed up that race. So it's not always a negative, but where if you can do it, uh, you know, bootstrapping is a great way to uh, a great way to go. And people fall into the trap of reading too much in the media about oh, everyone raised capital. He raised capital. Two guys in Los Angeles raised you know five million dollars on an idea. You know, when you look into it, it's never usually that the, the case. So, uh, yeah, I just ask founders that don't just read the media about everyone raising money. Get out there, get your product in the hands of people, get feedback, and hopefully they'll pay for it. Yeah. It's almost like classical business uh, advice, isn't it, Chad? Yeah. Well, and actually, one of our companies, WeWork, I think is maybe kind of fallen into that, uh, you know, raising money as fast as possible. Granted, it, it is in the real estate business, which is a very capital-intensive business, but they they have a tenuously defensible position in the market because it's it's a relatively simple idea. And kind of in the same way that Uber is a simple idea and Airbnb is a simple idea, so they just wanted to pour as much cash into the company as possible to just increase user growth and in, in, in just capture all of the market share. So we've got uh, Scott Galloway of L2 coming back uh, in setting up WeWork for us. WeWork is arguably the most overvalued company in the world. WeWork is now getting a valuation equivalent of $550,000 per customer. So it's hard to imagine how they can monetize consumers to the extent that warrants a $550,000 evaluation per consumer. In some instances, WeWork, if you do the math, the floor that the WeWork building leases in a building is worth more than the building hosting the WeWork. I bet if you looked at a Regis or uh, another co-working space, you'd find that they're worth kind of single digit thousands. WeWork makes absolutely no sense. That is the perfect example of kind of this frothy market of consensual hallucination between the company and its investors. <laughs> Did you love that consensual hallucination? Um, Brendan, what do you think? Is there a whole lot of hallucinating happening with WeWork as a business? Is it, is it just a property business uh, disguised as a tech company? Oh, look, it is a property business described as, as, a, as a tech company. Um, however, they've got a kind of bit of a problem is they don't own any of the buildings that they're in. And, you know, I think that's a kind of a small problem in the business model. And that would be fine even if they'd gone around, you know, five, ten years ago and picked up all these, you know, long leases at a bargain basement kind of, you know, fire sale prices, um, but they haven't. They've gone around and picked up all these leases and paid a premium because they wanted the best locations. Um, 
it reminds me of a story that I'd, I'd met um, an old Jewish guy about 20 years ago and he had a building in the red light district in Sydney and it was, he turned it into a backpackers. Uh, and he was proudly told me that he'd, uh, he, earns per, he earns, you know, per square meter or per square yard more than the Hilton Hotel. And I was like, no, you don't. And, he's, and he showed me the math and he actually did. And he goes, and I barely even cleaned the thing, uh, you know. And he was right because he jams, you know, 11 backpackers in a small room with bunk beds and they all have a shared bathroom and he's getting, you know, 40 bucks a night from each of them. Uh, you do the math, it's more than the Hilton Hotel uh, uh, costs. So the, the difference is, though, this old Jewish guy owned the building, right? So he was maximizing his, his return on that building. You know, when you're just leasing other people's buildings, I just can't. I mean, I've always had a question about that model. And obviously, you know, in the last year, a few people have kind of uh, noticed this as well. Um, the other thing is that for WeWork is they've had a lot of competition. You know, like when I first went to WeWork, I'm like, hey, this is a cool space. I'd like to work here. I'll take a casual desk here. That's fine. You know, now if you go to any of the markets like, you know, San Francisco or Sydney or, or New York, you know, there's, there's WeWorks, but there's a whole, lot of, um, a whole bunch of other, you know, cool, funky, hipster co-working spaces that are actually cheaper than WeWork. So they've got a, a problem there with the, the competition that's around for them as well. Yeah, I think my favorite part is that I'm sitting in a $550,000 chair right now because <laughs> I'm sitting here recording from a WeWork in uh, Dumbo Heights, Brooklyn. I'm I'm going to come out and say that I'm I'm putting WeWork in the hot what? category with an asterisk <laughs> with an asterisk because like I think WeWork is only going to continue to grow, but I do think that its valuation isn't quite justified. But I think that it is going to I mean, it has over two hundred thousand members globally, and you know, I think they're on track to try and acquire half a million by the end of twenty nineteen. And I think the business model is actually simple enough where it's it's not that hard. It's not that hard to figure out. You know, I did some digging and and find out. You know, th- the amount that they're investing and in paying per seat or per desk has been continuously declining. So I Oof. think they're getting that economy of scale. Mm. And I think I think the product is good enough where where they could where they could get those where they could uh, you know achieve those numbers. It, it, it's a simple, you know, lease arbitrage business. And, yeah. you know, it, yeah. it's kind of hard to mess it up. You know, I, even I can kind of understand like <laughs> how the math works and what the product is. So I think the future of work is this kind of communal, collaborative, um, freelance, you know, distributed work. And I think, you know, WeWork is the place where much of that is going to happen. So I, yeah. So as a, let's ask you as a, let's just flip into the, the use case. You're actually a customer of WeWork. Uh, tell us, are you satisfied with what you get for what you pay and what would get you out of a, a WeWork? Give us a little context around your experience as a customer. <laughs> my answer is kind of funny because what is getting me out of a WeWork is another WeWork location. <laughs> <laughs> They're building a they're building a brand new beautiful building in the Navy Pier in Brooklyn that has you know views of Manhattan and a rooftop conference center and a fitness center. So uh, they're they're continually improving a product, and so yeah, I, I'm potentially going to be leaving this WeWork building for a, another one. But I, just for the price point, I don't see how they'll ever make five hundred fifty thousand dollars you know lifetime value. Uh, f- from me, but um, for less than $500 a month, I have a dedicated space where I have essentially everything I need to, to run my business. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, I, I, I got to say that 
there is at least number one, the valuation is ridiculous. When when you think about it, guys, we're talking about this startup has only two hundred thousand customers. This is what Twitter and and you and and YouTube and Facebook and 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 other services acquire in a day or a week. I mean, and and it's a pretty transient customer base. And startups come and go, people come and go, and yes, the 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 experience wherever you go, a WeWork is pretty good. But, you know, regardless of which city, which country, I can't help but, but wondering, like I hear a lot of people who want something really nice. For example, a shout out to my friends in Sydney, Digipool. It's a great little uh, startup focused on talent. Those guys found a local boutique space that is beautiful really, really nice and comparable with a WeWork. And then there's lots of alternatives on the more affordable side that at least here in Sydney and San Francisco where you can get the same thing for close to half the price. So this points to me towards a couple of market factors, consolidation, um, them having to acquire a lot of boutiques and cheaper and this whole scale business is really a question of are there others who are better at scaling real estate than we work? And I'm honestly, is this hot? Would I invest? Would I pay a dollar to own WeWork stock? I wouldn't because I'm absolutely a no because there are far better companies. We mentioned Square from Jack Dorsey. That would get my money 10 times before I spend a dollar in WeWork, where are you on 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 spending the college fund, Brendan? You got lots of kitty winkies at home. Would you spend a dollar buying WeWork stock if you could? Yeah, look, I, I don't think I would. Uh, I think the uh, current and the investors in WeWork will continue to pour money into this for a, a fair bit longer before it, it turns around. Uh, look, I think their their co living product called WeLive uh, is interesting. Um, they're trialing different sort of formats of that from just you know, straight subletting apartments to, you know, smaller apartments that have more, you know, larger communal spaces. So, you know, it's certainly interesting. They're not the only ones doing that. But for me, I'm afraid I'll just have to, uh, um, I'll have to vote a not on that one. Too nice. Is there any chance, Chad, we can get you over to the not? I mean, honestly, Chad, would you, if you had $100 and you can buy any stock or WeWork, would you, would it, we work even be close to even in the top half? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not an investor. I mean, all, all I can say is, uh, in terms of, in terms of growth, I think WeWork is going to continue to have the kind of growth numbers that will be really appealing to not only the VC community, but also, you know, the public investment community if and when they IPO. Mm. Well, we're, tr- we're trying real hard, Brendan. Uh, is there any other, rationale we can pitch to Chad? Can we get him across to the nose? Is there any other arguments that you can come up with on the not side of things for WeWork? Are we really hallucinating about this company? Yeah, look, I, I still think we are hallucinating. Look, I mean, what Chad says about that kind of, you know, you know, office space arbitrage, the leasing arbitrage, he, he's correct. I, I just believe there's too much competition out there. And while I like the product, um, it's not unique enough for me out there, yeah. and I just think their model is, you know, they're gonna have to, they're gonna have to almost take over the world to kind of make it work. So uh, I'm gonna sit on a knot and 
maybe I can convince you, Chad, but maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> well, it looks it looks like we did, we didn't get him across the line. I mean, the, the interesting thing though is is growth is essential for the future of WeWork, and I think the lesson inside of this is understanding your business model not only now when you're in a young phase and an early stage, but it's also understanding what's to come down the track. And I think for the audience, it's so such a good lesson here. Of we work are they're like it's like being at a casino. They have to double down. Like there's no in between for them. They have to go on a rampage of leasing, maybe buying properties and just scaling as much as they can. And this is a this this requires a skill set, particularly operationally, to get efficiencies of scale, to be able to have enough capital to keep funding growth, because they're gonna be way off revenue, way off revenues that are gonna cover the cash required. So they're gonna have to keep going to a lot of these big later stage uh, venture firms. I believe SoftBank is a big investor uh, in them. The large and they're just gonna, yeah, and they're just going to have to keep like getting checks in the billions. And if they were to do anything that puts that at risk, for example, privacy that we saw or fake user accounts that we saw really dogging Twitter and Facebook, if they had the equivalent, this business could be in huge trouble. So whilst Chad is right, they can grow, there's a lot of conditions to that growth. So I think we're hallucinating. Any chance, Chad, we can bring you across to the nose after that argument? No. Ah! Uh, I'm going to stand <laughs> firm in my heart. Okay. Okay. We tried, Brendan. We tried, mate. Um, okay. So we've got one more company left that has growth mastered over the last few years and it's such a sharp contrast uh, to, to the, the chapter under previous leadership. And we're talking about none other than Redmond's finest, Microsoft. So let's now kind of put our headspace in a totally different type of business. We're back into software. There are themes of reinvention and possibilities all happening around Microsoft. But what we really have to ask ourselves, is this really a growth company? Is this really a growth unicorn or are we just seeing a return to normal and things are going to plateau? So let's have a listen now to commentary about Microsoft. I think uh, Microsoft is benefiting from really two things. One, they've moved their product suite to where the market is, as well as I think the increase in economic activity has brought up all areas of the business. Even Windows OEM services was up 7%, which I don't think a lot of people saw the PC cycle getting better. So almost every number in this report was better than people expected. I mean, right now, the, the, the pre, pre-earnings options trade suggested perhaps a 4% move in Microsoft up or down. That's what we're seeing pre-market right now. It's very hard to move a company this big in that kind of a way. So what's going to power Microsoft shares in this current quarter beyond just the guidance that we've got? Well, I think that's, you know, that's probably the biggest question facing Microsoft. Over the past five years, you've seen it move from really a high single-digit to low double-digit multiple of earnings into what is now a growth multiple. Um, and I, I consider, you know, we're value investors, so we're typically buying them when they're cheap and selling them when they get to a fair valuation. Um, but Microsoft hasn't really given us the, the, call it the impetus to sell it, 
because it continues to grow earnings now fast enough to keep up with that high valuation. So it is that rare value unicorn where you buy it based on valuation and the valuation continues to remain relatively cheap as earnings continue to accelerate. Very few big companies can move from being a flat revenue company to this kind of accelerated growth. So it's a real credit to Satya Nadella and his team at Microsoft. Yeah, I, the most surprising thing for, for me with Microsoft is just looking at its stock graph. It's just, it's gone up. So it's, you know, aside from the blip in 1999-2000, it's just continuously gone up. And this shift that they're pointing out is kind of like this crufty, stodgy company to a growth company, you know, reflected in its price to earnings ratio is really interesting because, you know, it's like an 800 plus billion dollar company. And here they are growing revenues enough to, uh, to make people perk up and be like, oh, you know, maybe this is, we can consider this kind of a, a high growth tech company. And I, I think you, you, you pointed to it right off the bat, Mike, it, it's, it is this new leadership. It is Microsoft just figuring out its different business divisions and launching products that um, are really hitting stride in the marketplace. Mm. I, I, I guess, you know, number one, big lesson here is the change in leadership from uh, Bulma to N- Nadella, massive change. You can look at the, the stock performance and it correlates directly with their leadership terms. Uh, that's number one. And certainly what that meant from a product perspective and an innovation perspective was a massive push towards the cloud, to finally getting Microsoft onto iOS. Do you remember under Bulma they had these stupid policies but they'd never put Microsoft Office apps on iOS? Just archaic thinking. Um, so fresh thinking, fresh leadership, things are looking pretty pretty okay. Question though, and I want to put this uh, to, to, to Brendan, has it returned to, uh, has it made up for lost time and is it just going to now have a mild growth profile or are you seeing things that could make this even a growth unicorn? Do you see bright uh, blips on the horizon that could mean that we've got more of this kind of growth ahead of us? Yeah, I mean, look, Microsoft is a company that, you know, for virtually all of us has has been around for a large part of our lives. And, uh, you know, it it started out as a software for personal computers. Uh, You know, if you look at the company today, you know, you won't find a lot of Microsoft software in my house. But if you walk into the city and walk into some large enterprises, you'll see Microsoft software everywhere. So to me, they've done two things really well in the last... um, you know, 10 years, which is one, that full transformation to a B2B enterprise software company. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think Microsoft really cares that I don't have, you know, Windows running on any computer in my house. Um, and the other thing they've done really well is just that shift to the cloud. You know, when they had all these, you know, corporations paying a lot of money for office licenses, they did a great job of actually migrating those enterprises across to Office 365. You know, they bundled in some Azure hosting. They gave them some uh, cloud storage with uh, OneDrive. They did a really, really good job of that. Sure, some of those enterprises went over to the kind of the G Suite, but most of them stayed. They didn't want to have to retrain their people on a new piece of software. You know, Office and Outlook all looked kind of the same. So they did a really good job of that of that transformation. They also moved the company from a kind of license model of how oh, you bought my software in a box to a subscription SaaS model, which means they didn't they don't need to come up with new 
you know, versions of the software or major updates to, you know, get someone to buy a new license. So, look, I think they're in a really good place. I think they're going to continue to grow. I don't think it'll be skyrocketing, but it's, it's super solid. And I'd certainly invest my dollar or even more in Microsoft. So uh, I think they're in a great place. So I'm calling them hot. Mm. Mm. What about you as a, as a customer, chat on this one? Do you have, use or, dare I say, love anything? uh from microsoft at the moment yeah of course i uh i i think that they were able to make this transition to the cloud kind of just in time so amazon's aws could have kind of eaten the entire world when it when it comes to you know running applications in the cloud i think microsoft launched their azure platform just in time uh to capture some of those really big enterprise customers you know amazon certainly makes itself available to anyone and everyone is kind of a self-service model i think microsoft's azure platforms kind of the heavy iron system out there and you know they got their 365 into the cloud kind of just in time you know like 10 years after google docs but um i think if they had waited any longer they would have kind of lost their last few customers to, to aws and um and google docs but I'm a gamer. I've always loved the Xbox. And uh, I'm not going to lie, I was on the uh, Microsoft website today looking at their new Surface Go tablet. Mm. I've, got, I've got a Surface at my apartment as kind of my, you know, putts and around computer. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, I've, I have thought about, uh, you know, replacing my MacBook Pro with, uh, with the Surface Book um, as soon as they come out with the, uh, with the six core version so it in as a user you know i i was a, a microsoft user well into college and then kind of when my creative streak came out i converted to mac but um I, i'm i'm gonna follow on with brendan and say that i'm putting microsoft in the, in the hot column as well wow well one thing uh that is um very true in our household is the xbox is a prized possession uh by my son without doubt and the interesting thing is he chose to graduate to, uh, to a PC for gaming uh, and, uh, you know, Apple really lost in that disconnect. Even though he's familiar with iOS devices and uh, the Macs that we have around the house, he, he actually made a, made a jump uh, to the PC platform in that case and he really covets his gaming tower. So there's a lot to like there. I think another thing to like is that they are continue at Microsoft to close the gap on cloud hosting um, with Amazon. Uh, just recently in the last few days, Gartner came out and said that Amazon, Microsoft is continuing to erode the lead that Amazon has. And it's really testament uh, to this company because you guys will remember the, the famous uh, Bill Gates memo when he said, we miss the internet. And uh, this was in response to, to Netscape. And they turned around, they built Internet Explorer, and they overcame that. And it seems like Nadella did the same thing and said, we missed the cloud. They've pivoted and they've caught up. It, it's a remarkable story, isn't it, Brendan? Yeah, I mean, I, that was a, such a famous quote in 1995 uh, by Bill Gates, and uh, you know, they you know they declared themselves an internet-centric company, and you know, have continued along. Um, 
you know, funny you guys mentioned the Xbox because I'd forgotten that I actually do have an Xbox here in the house that the kids use. So, and actually they buy movies on it and not only games, they buy games, movies, they use Netflix on the Xbox. So uh, I'll take that back. I do have a Microsoft operating system here in the house. <laughs> well, it, it, it's, um, it's, there's a lot to learn here. I think I wanted to ask both of you, we're, we're all a firm, yes, Microsoft is hot. What, ha- what are the things we can learn from Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft? What can we learn from him as being just a showcase in great leadership? What, what has he done? Uh, Chad, what do, what do you, when you look at him, what has he done beyond the move to the cloud, et cetera? What is he doing as a leader? What are they, what's going on there that is creating all of this change? I'm, I'm going to say that I don't know. Mike, and it sounds like we have another uh, fantastic show topic. Oh, yeah. I would love to just hear from him, do the research. I'm not as familiar with the turnarounds that he's made at the company, other than just what I can see as a consumer. Mm. Um, I actually had a chance to go to the Microsoft store here in New York City. It's definitely trying to be an Apple store, but I think it it's finally, you know, able to stand on its own. The, the suite, suite of products um, and and kind of operating and user experience that they have. It, yeah, I think it's it's definitely rivaling Apple in in many regards. What do you think, Brendan? When you when you when you go and, and you you look at the Microsoft experience, is easily meeting uh, the consumer offerings of Apple. Certainly, at least in a services perspective, I think hardware they've got some work to go obviously in the b2b enterprise space and the hosting cloud space they're doing a good job what do you see what do you observe uh as being the key things that are leading this transformation yeah look i think satya will be a great topic for a for a podcast to dig into it more but look balmer still believed that microsoft could be all things to all people you know and uh you know he was a kind of a very crazy kind of cat you know if you want to watch some funny youtube videos uh Tonight, when you get home, just type in Steve Ballmer crazy videos and you'll see some things you've never seen on stage before. But, you know, when Satya came in, he, he said, you know, he came in with the attitude, let's focus on what we're good at. Mm. You know, uh, Microsoft phone, bad. Let's get rid of that, right? Like, you know, they, they kind of, uh, you know, and there were some sort of missteps there with operating systems. They developed a desktop operating system for the phone, then they developed a mobile operating system for the desktop, and they kind of sort of got that a little bit wrong. But they've certainly focused on what they're good at. And then they've also now, what he's really done is focus the business around subscription products and, and recurring revenue. Um, and obviously, B2B recurring revenue is about as good as you can get. So, uh, yeah, it's a, they're, they're in a really good place. Mm, mm. The, the interesting thing is they continue to play around with the Surface products. And, uh, Chad, it just feels like each year they are closing the gap and becoming more like what we discovered the Apple platform is all about hardware software services it feels like the gap is reducing dramatically doesn't it more so on this on the hardware side of things mm. i still i still feel like the ui there's just so much kind of legacy bad experience that it's trying to overcome you know the creation of osx i i think is you know under steve jobs's guidance at apple is like really kind of an unsung triumph for them just because their entire you know the success of their entire mac hardware system is really dependent upon that os which is over a decade old i think at this point yeah yeah 
The, um, the interesting theme now, if we step back and we look at these five companies, what's really interesting is we had very strong alignment on Tesla and Microsoft, which were all strong yeses. We had Facebook and Twitter, which were all strong no's. And WeWork fell awkwardly in this. I mean, this is where the, the margin of hot or not was its uh, finest, if you will. Um, Brenda, I wanted to ask you when, you, when you see the theme that uh, Facebook and Twitter were strong no's, Tesla, Microsoft, strong yes, are there any sort of observations or insights you have about what ties these together? It feels like certainly a theme that we talked about earlier was Tesla and Microsoft build stuff, make stuff that's not dependent on the social graph. Facebook, Twitter, pure app companies dependent on social. Seems like there's something there. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, Facebook and Twitter are both very much, uh, you know, B2C players. Obviously, their revenue still comes from advertisers. Uh, and I, I just think that maybe the market is looking at how fickle consumers are today. You know, we had Snapchat seem to pop up out of nowhere and get millions of users. You know, I think if I'm investing and I'm and I'm trying to build in either two factors for my share investment, like the share investment decision, which is I want high growth, but I also want long, longevity. If it doesn't, you know, if the growth slows and I don't, I'm not convinced I've got longevity, it makes it a pretty risky investment. You know, if I look at something like Microsoft and Tesla, you, you know you've got some longevity there. You can question about how large the growth's going to be, but the longevity is going to be there. So that's probably where I think the nervousness is around Facebook and Twitter is that there will be a new social network that will, that will pop up. You know, no one thought there was a spot for a Snapchat and there was. No one thought there was a spot for an Instagram and there was. So that there will be a new one that comes up as handsets and technology changes uh, that allows us to interact with it in a new way, uh, in a different way, and there's going to be more opportunity out there for uh, someone to put their hand up and become, you know, the social graph um, of the future. Mm, mm. Chad, what are you seeing uh, in, is there, are there any themes or learnings that you're pulling from the strong hots, the strong knots? I think part of it is, it, I believe it's fundamentally easier for people to wrap their heads around companies that, that, that build things. It's harder for, in some ways, consumers. I, you know, the United States Senate spent half its time asking Mark Zuckerberg, just like, okay, like, how exactly does Facebook work? And how, you know, it's just like, no one really understands, like, what it is and how it makes, you know, and or how it makes money or any, any of that. And um, it's not to say that it, that there's not some value in there and that they're doing some really innovative things at times. It's just hard to like put a pin in it and be like, yep, that's what Facebook is and does. This kind of insidious nature of the user as the product, you know, I would probably guess that 90% or more of Facebook users, just, I mean, they just don't understand or grasp that concept. I think mm. once people start waking up to that, uh, both at Facebook and Twitter, you know, th those platforms may not be as appealing to them mm. as, as, as other things. I, I think the other interesting thing I'm seeing here, guys, is that Facebook and Twitter don't charge their customers. Like the end user doesn't pay. And this leads to needing to exploit those users, but it also leads to a tons of fake users. Whereas if you look at Tesla, Microsoft, and WeWork, there's a much clearer transaction happening. And I wonder if that's actually another theme here, like the danger of free products and services. 
Yeah, I mean, Ben Horowitz famously said a few years ago that, uh, you know, uh, you know, nine out of uh, 10 companies that are started are B2C and uh, nine out of 10 IPOs are B2B. So, mm-hmm. you know, you think, you know, read into that data. So, yeah, there's, there's no doubt that, that monetizing from other businesses is probably the, you know, the, the better way to go. And monetizing on consumers is kind of limited. You either you get them to pay like with a, you know, a Netflix style product, but obviously you have to have a, you know, a compelling product to, to make people pay for it. You know, I'm certainly not going to pay for, you know, to, for Facebook just to watch two of my friends arguing about uh, Donald Trump or something. So yeah, it's more difficult to, uh, to monetize, but you know, I, th- I think social media is still here to stay and there'll be new players that pop up. Mm. Well, certainly uh, what's been great about this is that not only did we do some decoding where two, four, uh, two clear yeses, two clear noes, and one sort of right down the middle, but I think, uh, Chad, we've found some very interesting topics for future shows. Obviously, we need to dig into the founders of, of WeWork and WeChat, but... Uh, I think uh, Satya Nadella, he is screaming for uh, a deeper investigation. Uh, wouldn't you agree? Yep. We'll be adding those to the future episodes section of moonshots.io, I'm, I'm pretty sure. And you know, the funny thing is the list of future shows, this thing never gets smaller. N- despite the fact that we keep producing shows, we seem to get more and more. It's like this sort of cumulative compounding that just keeps happening. The list just gets bigger. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, hopefully we'll uh, we'll bring Brendan back for the trifecta, a third episode here soon. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I think there's a lot to a lot to take from from these companies, and I think there's probably for the first time we've really explored some of the downsides of innovation and uh, being very careful of how you exploit your users, how you actually create a balance in marketplaces and uh, knowing which business you're in, great deal of focus for Microsoft. You know, there's some warning signs there for WeWork. They're on a cash-hungry sprint for perpe- in perpetuity perhaps, which is enormously challenging. But, but Brendan, any last thoughts um, as we sort of wrap up our hot or not? Have you taken any new ideas from this show despite the fact that you and I were unable to convince Chad, to swing across to the nose on WeWork. Any other insights or learnings that came to you through the show? Oh, look, the, well, the interesting thing about WeWork and, the, you know, one of the reasons we're divided is that it's, it's sort of like a B2C company because a lot of individuals that are freelancers and, you know, people like that go in there, but their real game is to try and get people like, you know, Microsoft and Google to take, you know, and IBM to take hundreds of desks in there. So they're, they're sort of playing a little bit of both. So it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. But, you know, look, it's great to be on the show, guys, and I will uh, be checking my email daily for the next invite. (laughs) Well done, well done. Uh, And thank you ever so much for for, for joining us, Brendan. Chad, I wanted to ask you, did you, even though we couldn't get you on WeWork, were there any other thoughts or ideas that came to you uh, from discussing who was hot and who was not? No, uh, other than I would love to uh, do some more shows like this where we're when we're kind of comparing and contrasting different companies and different industries with different business models doing different kinds of of innovation. This is this has been a lot of fun. Mm, absolutely. Well, listen, um I think w- w- there will definitely be time for uh, another hot or not before the end of the year. There's so much seems to be happening. I mean, it's incredible that literally I woke up this morning and Elon Musk is announcing that he wants to take 
Tesla private. It's like this never-ending uh, dynamic where there's really massive moves in these innovation and technology companies, which makes the show such a, a joy uh, to do. So, Chad, thank you uh, for for all of your ideas and for staying the ground on WeWork. <laughs> you you were strong. You didn't buckle under the pressure. Yeah, we'll just we'll, we'll see in in a year and three years. We'll see we'll see where we're at. Yeah, you're in you're in a, an Australian pincer movement. Brendan Yell from one side, Mike Parsons from the other, and you're like, uh, uh-uh. uh. Uh, so they're, they're doing something uh, right there. So thank you. Thank you to you, Brendan. Uh, enjoy the, the sunshine on the, on the coastal wonders of, of, of Australia. I hope you have a day of productivity ahead of you. Awesome. Thank you, guys. All right. Hey, uh, that's a, a wrap for the show, our first hot or not, a nice uh, change in the winds of moonshots after a huge Apple series. Um, very exciting times ahead. Chad, who, who are we going to jump into? I think we're going to jump into a whole new series uh, for the next show. Have you got your uh, – are you feeling refreshed after the hot or not? And are you ready to jump into a whole new world uh, over the next few weeks? Yeah, I've got some fresh downloads in my uh, Audible app on my phone to uh, listen to in my lovely walking commute to and from my WeWork. And we're moving on to our author profile series hearing it from the likes of Peter Drucker, Clay Christensen, and Eric Reese, and uh, Simon Sinek, too. Simon Sinek, yeah, yeah. Now, of, of those, who are you most looking forward to, Chad? Who's, who's had a lot of influence on you? I love Peter Drucker. As kind of dry as he can be, I think he's kind of the godfather of, of, of strategy and kind of you know, management as we know it today. Yes, he, I, I, I'm a huge Drucker fan. I wanted to ask you, Brendan, out of those pickings, so think Clay Christensen, who had Innovator's Dilemma, Peter Drucker, Simon Sinek, who's the famous Start With Why, and Eric Reese, the Lean Startup. Of those four, who would you be most, most interested, most curious to decode? Oh, look, Simon Sinek, I think, is, for me, easily the most interesting, you know, you know, there's so many, you know, that famous uh, YouTube video of the, you know, the art of why we buy things, I mm. think is just at the core of kind of uh, psychology. And I know that Simon's written other books and done other talks since then. So uh, I'd be uh, super keen to tune into that one. Awesome. All right, guys, well, listen, for all of those listening, if you want to have a look at the list of future shows, hit moonshots.io. We also publish all the shows, all the uh, show notes, everything is up there and more. So check that out at moonshots.io. Thank you to Brendan, to Chad, and to all our listeners. That's a wrap of the Moonshots podcast.